This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. If you don't know Heaven 17, then I'm going to recommend something. Go to YouTube, watch the video to let me go, listen to that music, and tell me, do you think it's the greatest track ever made? Because I do, but that's just an opinion. It's also pretty much the opinion of Mikkel Munzing from Snap. He told us that in uh, his interview. Now, BEF are often credited with helping to resurrect Tina Turner's career. She sang Ball of Confusion on Music of Quality and Distinction Volume 1, and because of that success, Tina was able to release a cover of the Al Green classic, Let's Stay Together, which was also produced by Martin Ware. Now, in part two of this podcast, Martin talks about Heaven 17, the British Electric Foundation, his love of architecture, and touring today as Heaven 17, which formed out of the disagreements within the early Human League. Convert that negative energy into po- positive energy. Formed BEF with the help of Bob last, and uh, and Heaven 17 was the first project. And as it happened, Glenn was just coming back to Sheffield after being in London for a couple of years, and asked him to be... He would have been the original singer of the Human League anyway, had he been in Sheffield. Um, so it made perfect sense to start a new project and wipe the board clean. You know. I mean, although Penthouse and Pavement was a success, there wasn't, yeah. there wasn't really single success at the beginning, was there? How, how did you feel at that period with what had gone on in the past, what you just talked about, suddenly being in London, trying to make a success of what you were doing, but still not quite breaking through that must have been quite a difficult period or was it you know like no I think it was it wasn't because uh, bear in mind bear in mind that um we'd also released the uh, the BF musical quality and distinction album so our profile was high we were on the front cover of NME sounds you know melody maker um uh with both hem 17 and BF and the and penthouse and pavement was a i suppose you call it in in record company parlance a grower but uh it was in the top um 40 for 75 weeks so it were the the sales were consistent and and um that gave the record company even though we didn't have any big hits from it they could see the interest that was being shown around the world uh, in different marketplaces. And um, 
so I to give I always do this I always try and do this because Pete's very it's a bit like I, I always regard uh, record labels as, as being a bit like referees in football games you know they all, they're very easy to criticise uh, but the the whole thing couldn't happen without them largely it's not quite the same now but um, but in those days it was essential so in terms of a record company they were incredibly supportive to us Uh so when it came to doing the luxury gap and we decided to go for the jugular you know, commercially, a large part of that was the fact that they never at any point put any restrictions on uh, on what it would cost uh, on the budget for the album. Never mentioned money even. It was like, what do you want to do? Where do you want to do it? Who do you want to do it with? So we said, all right, we'll pick the best studio in London, Air Studios at Oxford Circus. Um, we will work with, um, we wanted to work with Pete Walsh again from Penthouse and Pavement, but he wasn't available, so he recommended his brother, Greg Walsh, which proved to be a, an inspired recommendation, uh, as he had all the skill sets of working with various soul acts and uh, Rod Temperton and, and uh, Jeff Emmerich, he was trained by at Abbey Road and you know, vocal stacking of heat wave and all that stuff. He he brought that to the table, plus an immense knowledge about uh, engineering and mixing. Um, and so they never and orchestras, best uh, session players. So they were really uh, an instrumental part of uh, ensuring that that whatever. We were going. Whatever the second album was going to be like, we were going to get all the resources we needed to make it as successful as possible, and to hopefully, uh, not just in the UK. You know, we were partially aiming also at the American market because American music, sorry, uh, English music was was uh, uh, doing very well in America at that point. Uh, from the I suppose new wave, we were classified under that heading at the time. Um, and so there was a um, possibility they could get huge advances out of American licensees to put out Heaven 17. And it worked. I mean, uh, Let Me Go was the, the first yeah. sort of successful single. And then came um, Temptation with Carol Kenton. Let Me Go is, in fact, my favourite single of all time. And mine. Um, <laughs> I and just mine. love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, the Carol Ken Kenyon Temptation was an absolute massive um success what was success like and uh what did it give you i mean in all aspects right um wow uh success success i mean obviously incredibly um uh exciting is what it, as soon as you're doing it, you know, and you're on top of the pops and all the other TV shows, and you've been flown around the world to different TV shows. Bear in mind, we didn't perform live at the time, so the only way that the record companies had to promote the record was to either film a great video and send it to all the territories, or fly us out to TV shows. Unfortunately, the tactic worked, so we ended up travelling all over the world doing. All sorts. We ended up doing American Bandstand in America, you know, and uh, shows all over Europe, uh, you name it. Anyway, so, and and we got to do really uh, interesting, well-resourced 
videos too. And, that, and we were very interested in this new world as portrayed by MTV, where you could service all the territories simultaneously uh, using a, a you know an, a, the highest quality video videos. So we became part of part of that scene. The the net effect of it all was it just seemed like the party would never end, really. Um, we didn't... I got married for the first time in 1981 and I couldn't fit in our honeymoon until two and a half years later. That's how busy we were. Didn't have a holiday at all. Uh, because also we were doing... Um, my uh, production career was taking off at that point as well. And uh, right in the middle of doing the luxury gap, you know, the opportunity to work with Tina Turner and produce Let's Stay Together, which was my idea, I'm glad to say. Um, it just seemed... It's really difficult. It's, it's like when you're in the middle of that kind of... You're riding that wave. It seems like it's never going to end. And that's not just... It's not arrogance. It's just like you've got no other... You've got no other experience or expectation, and uh, you know I was even I remember distinctly thinking, um, right, one one thing that characterises the work that I I've done throughout my career, I I think is my sense of uh, daring. I don't I'm I'm fairly fearless when it comes to creativity. I'll have a go at stuff. I'm not musically trained. I've never. I can't read or write music. And there I am in a in in in, in a uh, in a studio with a sixty-piece orchestra and some of the best session players in in Britain, if not the world, performing. You know, writing string arrangements with our string arranger, and yeah, I'll have a go at anything. And that that goes for the production side of things as well. Working with Tina Turner, who made River Deep Mountain High, one of my favourite singles of all time you know I just at that time just thought if I continue being brave which wasn't really that much of an effort to be honest uh, it's not that's not the same as being reckless by the way it's you 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 calculate what you think is worth taking a risk on but but you just think if something fails, well, you know, it's like a buses, you know, another one will come along in a minute. I'll just I'll just produce some more stuff for somebody else and that'll be successful. And amazingly, this kind of theory worked. Um until late in, until the second half of the eighties when we kinda of ran out of steam with um uh, and confidence to a certain extent with Hem seventeen. Uh but it it definitely worked for my production career. Um I remember talking to Tina Turner and Roger Davis about Ball of Confusion. Right. Which was on the album. And I remember yeah. they both told me, Roger told me that actually he had to set up a gig in Sweden to pay for the trip to London. I don't know. Really? I, and yeah, and that, that when they came to London, um, Tina went into the studio, just sang it in one, Ball of Confusion, and thought That's right. that okay, this was just a rehearsal. <laughs> and that, you you had both said no, that's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, perfect. yeah. Is that how it worked? Yeah, I remember saying, um, "Well, we'll we'll do one for Lloyd's." That's what they say, isn't it? So as insurance in case something went wrong. But that's it. 
you know, it was the perfect performance straight out of the bag. But I've told this story many times before, but um, she said after she'd finished, I mean, she was in the studio for like an hour. That was it. And um, she said at the end, she said, Martin, Martin, that was uh, that was kind of difficult to sing. You know, it sounded like there was more than one guy on that. And I said, it's the Temptations. There's four of them. He said, who are they? Honest to God, I swear on my children's life. That shows how far she turned her back on, on, uh, on soul music, black music. She wanted to be Rod Stewart, really, or 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 Mick Jagger, or or a combination of them and David Bowie. You know. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, Tina is such a. Uh... Or at that period, I mean, I met her later, probably, but such a sort of amazing energy to her amazing. and, a, and a, a wonderful, wonderful character. You know what? What's a, but just to finish on the Tina point, she uh, she's just a performer in the studio or on stage or or on a film or anything. What she's what she's, born, she's just born to perform. So when she performs in the studio, it's like she's performing to an audience. You know, she never got involved in the production of anything, as far as I know. Uh, definitely not with us. Uh, she didn't show any interest in it, or mixing, or approval of mixers. Or she was just happy to be, you know, one of the best soul singers on earth. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Did, yeah. did success give you confirmation of what you were doing? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, how else are you meant to judge anything? I mean, yeah, but then you said you ran out of energy. You know, that was... Uh, no, not energy. The, no, no. Insp- inspiration. Kind of and inspiration, but that was 717. Okay. That was different. So what happened was... We we made uh, our third album, How Men Are, which we were really, really proud of and happy with. And it's got, you know, this is mine. It's just great. It's got Phoenix horns on it. It should have been a top ten hit. And for, and I won't go into detail because it would take too long, but basically on the day where it was uh, storming into the charts uh, and we were due to go on top of the pops, the day before, Glenn... Uh, got out of his jeep um, and exploded his cartilage in his left knee uh, and was in hospital uh, and said and you know we phoned at top of the pops and said look you know we're hoping to get him out and we'll, band- we'll see what we can do bandage it up he was on morphine for god's sake Michael Hurl who was a well known asshole I'm sorry to speak ill of the dead but um, uh, uh, turned round to Virgin and to us, and said, um, "He can sit. He can sit on a stool and perform." He said, "Look, he's on morphine. You know, the guy cannot walk." Anyway, we made an effort. He came down, and he stayed for an hour, and he just couldn't. The pain was too excruciating, uh, and and uh, we had to take him out. Michael Hurl, before we left, said, "If you walk out of the studio, you will never get on. You will never be on top of the pops again." This was our first single off the third album, <coughs> and we didn't. So we released Sunset Now, another, an, another you know, very commercial sounding hit. Got uh, a certain amount of airplay, but because it wasn't going to be on top of the pops, 
the pluggers found it difficult to play so on Radio 1 and yeah, commercial radios. And it's like a pack of cards falling. So, consequently, there were no hit, real hits off that album, even though it's, I think, it's my favourite M17 album. So then it came to the fourth album, and this really knocked our confidence. By this time, we were moving away from just pure the pure electronic thing. We'd we'd uh, been I'd been using a whole uh, a raft of session players for different BEF productions, and you know the stuff we did with. I was getting more confident in production and less confident with Hem Seventeen. So we wrote some really good songs. Uh, some of them weren't so good. <clears throat> but the point is, the palette of sounds we were using was more traditional instruments, and it, and suddenly we lost our vibe, and more 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 so with the fifth album. That's why we got dropped, and it just didn't work really. Um, but it's, what's interesting is how you can lose con- how even successful bands can lose confidence in their core their core uh, strategy. You know, over a period of a year, two years. You know, uh, and I'm sure it happens with a lot of bands, not just us. But also, you know, the marketplace was changing at that point. It was less about experimentation. Record companies were starting to want to control what singles got put out, what the sound was. We were moving into the PWL area of things. Getting into the charts was not just about how good the record was. It was about establishing a brand, you know, and so on and so forth. So you end up with a lot of kind of less exciting, more kind of blue-eyed soul kind of things going on in the late 80s in the UK charts. And so it just didn't seem to fit with us so much. And having such a distinctive voice as Glenn's, you know, which was um, of massive uh, benefit in the core of our uh, success, suddenly became a problem because... Uh, people going, oh, it sounds a bit old-fashioned, that now, you know? Happened with a lot of people, like OMD, for instance. Uh, and, and a lot of those acts from the early 80s became unfashionable in the late 80s and got dropped. Um, but, as I mentioned, you know, production-wise, things were going from strength to strength. I was doing more soul with Terrence Trent Dar because that's, you know, I'm a soul man. Okay. I used to go to the Northern Soul Clubs, etc., etc. So uh, Sheffield's a soul city, and um, could you dance? I was not a Northern Soul dancer. <laughs> I would like to say I was. I had a friend, of, uh, uh, a friend, a friend of mine called Moggy. Uh, I used to go with. He could. Oh my God, he was an amazing dancer, and he just looked like a normal guy in the street, you know. And just get him on the dance floor, and it's like fucking hell, amazing. Uh, I've always been in uh, in awe of uh, Northern Soul dancers. Yeah. What, why do we have such an affinity for for this period of early eighties, even today? I mean, there's incredible affinity for that, and there's not only an affinity for that. There's, you know, as I saw in Hamburg, and as I felt, an incredible affinity to Heaven Seventeen. It's you know, like a sort of growing loyalty today for a band that was you know in a different period yeah i think um well there were several several things back then that that were we were quite prescient about i think one is uh we always stated 
overtly stated amongst ourselves in the band that we wanted to create music that would have uh, uh, longevity. I mean, it's a bit presumptuous to say timeless, but that's what we were aiming at. Uh, and as and, uh, as far as we were concerned, w- you know, we the the nominal timescale we put on that was ten years. We said, you know, we want people still to be listening to this in ten years, and here we are, you know, nearly forty years later, and people it seems to be growing in popularity again. Um, and I think what was special about that time, uh, it, the fuse was lit by punk, obviously. So everything's kind of framed by the kind of explosion of excitement. Ironically, I kind of like punk. I was a punk for a couple of weeks, but um, it was more about the um, the process that that engendered, which is anybody can have a go, right? That's what made my career. Suddenly we thought we can't be any worse than them. You know, certain punk bands in the north, for instance, like the Drones or... Uh, slaughtering the dogs. It was just terrible. <laughs> I mean, terrible. And we shared the bill with a couple of them. And we went, oh, fucking hell, we really are no worse than these. We can do this. And we did. And I think a lot of people felt that. Felt uh, it gave them confidence. And then combine that with um, record companies who who uh, were suddenly awash with with, uh, cash um, and wanted to ensure that um, they didn't have to pay as much tax as they could, you know. Uh, They wanted to recycle the money back into signing new acts. So um, they they were just signing just about everyone, you know, who got anything resembling. I mean, look, EMI, for instance, at that time, uh, they tried to sign us, by the way, in 1978, but they were too corporate for us. It was just not right. We wanted to go with Virgin or Ireland. So, but uh, but EMI were late to the party. So it got to like post punk 8081, and they're going, we got to get some of this stuff. Everybody's buying this new wave stuff. Come on, what are we going to get? And so, you know, people like Cabrio Voltaire, friends of ours, with all of you know, I love them to death. They're our mentors, and we'll be we'll be friends forever. But the thought that they could make, you know, pop records is frankly absurd. You know, they had a go because they got the new kind of the whole drum machine thing, and the dance fraternity were into them, and they made some good records, really good records. But they were never going to, you know, be in the pop charts. And likewise, but our friend um, Spiz Oil, Spiz Energy. Atletico Spizzetti, whatever you want to call them, who we went on tour with with uh, Susan the Banshees, we're still friends now. They got signed to EMI as well. They got huge advances, and I'm going, this is crazy. Everybody's getting signed, you know. So it was an entirely and unique, uniquely different period, where it was pretty much a scattergun approach on, uh, on, in, in terms of a lot of record companies. But the ones who, um, there was financial support, you know, for people exploring their thing. And maybe only, you know, two out of every ten they signed actually broke even. When they broke even, they usually went through the stratosphere. So in those days, where the, where the 80s, in the 80s, where the place was awash with money, particularly the new 
paradigm to do with CD releases and recycling past catalogue and everything. They're going, wow, we can release all this about three or four times in the future. All of a sudden, it's like the Klondike, right? That's not going to happen again, ever. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. You mentioned Ian Craig Marsh and getting the money from his parents who won the lottery to be able to buy his synthesizer. Have you still got your Korg 700, is it? Your first synthesizer, is it there? Yeah, I can show you, in fact. There it is. Okay, so tell me what you use that today. And the System 100. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> and the JP4. All right. So you've stayed loyal your whole life. Yeah. They're yeah, the only three sense, uh, physical sense I still possess. Yeah. I Everything mean, else is in the box. <laughs> one of the things that you do today is that you're a, um, a professor and lecturer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I presume you impart knowledge uh to your students, what are the key things you say about creativity to them today? It's very interesting because the the uh, the lay of the land is entirely different now. It's very difficult for them to. Uh, it's very difficult for young people now because what's the purpose of signing to a record company? It's to use their marketing clout. Uh, it's to use their their uh, their knowledge and their contacts in the music industry internationally, you know, their sub-licensees, blah, blah, blah. So that's not changed, but it's possible, obviously, to release your stuff yourself now. And I think a lot of people, are, a lot of young artists have been encouraged to go down that route. Uh, and I think it's a little bit disingenuous a lot of the time because... You still need to promote your work. I could, you know, there are various platforms like DistroKid, for instance. I could write an album this morning. I could knock out an instrumental album, have it out uh, to on all digital platforms uh, for sale or free within a week. And it costs me 15 quid a year. So if I can do that, everybody can do it. So it's how you direct traffic to what's coming out next. So for young people, this is immensely difficult. And I deal with, um, I, 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 I teach a uh, right into commercial brief <coughs> as part as my module, as part of my work as principal of Tyler education, MA courses in commercial songwriting and, um, and production. And, um, Right into commercial brief, as far as I'm concerned, is now about telling young people that that most people in the music industry or creators have to have five, at least five, maybe more different strings to their bow to make ends meet, to make one decent career. It's highly unlikely you're going to be Ed Sheeran. It's highly unlikely, you know, or equivalent. (coughs) And... um, the vast majority of people uh, have to perform live to make ends meet, which is good. Um, but the recording field is very difficult now. Very, very difficult. I mean, you, you're uh, literally earning nothing from Spotify. It's a disaster. 
you know. So, uh, for instance, with Heaven 17, we we are not releasing, uh, we've not released anything for a couple of years, but when we did release stuff a few years ago, me and Glenn just decided not to release anything digitally at all. Again, it's all going to be on vinyl, via, directly via our website, because um, that's the only way you can make money out of it. So, make things collectibles, you know. So finally, what do you le- what what have you learned from them, as, as oh. an older man with younger people who are coming into the business? What, you, um, what do you learn from I, them? I, I love their talent, their energy, their um, the joy they have in. Um, the joy they have in learning, uh, right? Being able to research uh, is, is is a very important thing. Uh, easily on the internet now, so you know, it's like having the the musical musical equivalent of the Library of Alexandria on your on your mobile phone, isn't it? Really, in terms of music, you can pretty much listen to anything you want. Um, and now with podcasts, you know, you can pretty much listen to all the people who are your favorite creators a lot of the time. So, um, I, the joy I see in, in my students, and I do a lot of one-to-one mentoring as well, revealing to them, uh, the provenance of the things that they like, uh, is a joy because then they, it's like, it's like, I, I regard teaching as being like, um, being a traffic cop now you know it's more about directing traffic than it is about actually imparting your knowledge you know it's about teaching them which rabbit hole to go down and then and then setting them free um so that's a big difference now the the kind of research that uh, would have been needed to do that in the past would have taken you know weeks in the national sound archive you know so, Martin, thank you. I mean, I love the fact that your career has so developed and changed over the years. I can't wait for you to get back on tour. Uh, no, I know. Mean, well, we're starting at the end of this month, actually. Oh, fantastic. Uh, we're doing lots, lots of gigs throughout August, uh, festivals and stuff. And then, of course, we're doing the Hem 17 Presents Reproduction and Travelogue at the Roundhouse in London and Sheffield City Hall, September the 5th and 6th or something, 4th and 6th. can't remember. Um and then we're doing our tour next year. I mean, there's all sorts of things coming up. It's a bit scary because we haven't we haven't performed for like 18 months, but um, it'll be all right. I just finally want to say, you said the 70s in Sheffield, there was no racism, there was a sense of community and so thing. So on the 80s for me in London was sexism, racism, homophobia, misogyny. But, oh, right. but there was one thing that was brilliant about it, and it was music, and it was in particular your music. So thank thank you very much. That's very kind. Thank you. And that's it for part two with Martin Ware of Heaven 17. Now, if you like this podcast, connect with me. Go on Instagram at steve.blame or follow or just go to my steady page, type in steadyhq.com and pop the history makers into Google. There you'll find it. There you can become a member. There you can get a newsletter. There you get additional material. So have a good one and I'll see you soon.